Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that nothing is mysterious to you. And that you know all things and teach us all things. And we thank you that we can trust you. We thank you that you do not, the future is not dark to you as it is to us. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us your grace, give us great faith to be able to follow you. We pray that you would lift our eyes up that we might see Christ and in seeing him be filled with confidence in this world. In a time when the future seems so murky and so uncertain and full of fear, be our guide. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning we continue to push forward into the second half of Daniel. And we've been saying that the second half of Daniel, beginning in chapter 7, conveys a more pessimistic and foreboding mood than the first six chapters. Right? It's full of apocalyptic-like visions that allude to a distressing future for God's people. And this morning, we come to Daniel 9. More specifically, we come to the famous 70 weeks of Daniel, which one scholar appropriately describes as the dismal swamp of Old Testament criticism. The scholarship surrounding the 70 weeks of Daniel is described in such an unpleasant way because the last four verses of Daniel 9 have produced endless theories and contradicting calculations in an attempt to provide a timetable for not only the first coming of Jesus, but also his second coming. Scholars, some seemingly more scholarly than others, have poured over these four verses in order to offer predictions about the end of history, a time that neither the angels of heaven nor Jesus himself can predict. Jesus said as much in our New Testament passage read for you earlier, about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. That's not kept us from guessing, though. Through creative calculation and an imaginative scrutiny of the last four verses of Daniel 9, humanity has time and again tried to find a window through which we might peer into the mind of the Father and be able to predict the timing of Jesus' second advent. But these exhaustive and exhausting efforts are fruitless unless the fruit one seeks is the glory of appearing to have solved a riddle that's not actually intended to be solved. To me, the real tragedy of the obsession with the 70 weeks of Daniel 9 is that the rest of the chapter is ignored in favor of the more enigmatic ending contained in just the last four verses. The first 19 verses of Daniel 9 are as clear as the last four are confusing. And while the conversation surrounding the last four verses tends towards futility, a careful examination of the first 19 verses not only proves to be tremendously fruitful, but also ironically provides us with the context that lends insight into the meaning and purpose of the 70 weeks. And we'll get to that context and return to the 70 weeks eventually, but first let's let Daniel teach us how to pray, how to confess. The first 19 verses contain a prayer that is a model for us to imitate in our own prayers. If you want to learn how to pray, then Daniel 19, 1 through 19 is a great place to start. Daniel 9, 1 through 19 is a great place to start. 
prayer is the most important activity that a Christian can possibly practice in this broken world, which is what makes these 19 verses far more edifying than the puzzle of numbers found in the last four verses. And as we examine Daniel's prayer, it's helpful to understand Daniel's frame of mind as he begins to pray. And the first two verses of the chapter provide us with two important pieces of information. The first is that Babylon has fallen. The first verse tells us that Darius the Mede was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, which is just another name for Babylon. Babylon has fallen, and Media, with Darius at the helm, has taken its place. And this new development, the fall of Babylon, would have raised all sorts of questions in Daniel's mind about what's next for him and for God's people living in exile now that Babylon had fallen. You see, Daniel stood at a fork in the road, and he did not know which way God would lead him. Therefore, we find Daniel returning to the scriptures in verse 2, specifically the prophet Jeremiah, in order to find answers. And there in Jeremiah chapters 25 and 29, Daniel discovered that 70 years had been assigned to God's people as punishment for their rebellion, and that Babylon would fall at the end of those 70 years. In Jeremiah 29.10, God promises, when Babylon's 70 years are completed, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Well, Babylon had fallen and with their fall, Jeremiah's hopes began to rise Could this be the moment that God rescues us from this strange and distant land where we are living as foreigners? Jeremiah was hoping that Babylon's end would mean that they could finally go home and things would return to normal. He was hoping that Babylon's fall meant the end of God's displeasure with them. But Daniel was also keenly aware that the exile had done little to change the hearts of God's people. And this is a problem and pattern we see repeated throughout Scripture. The judgment of God does not change the hearts of humanity. For example, in Genesis 6, God saw that every inclination of the thought of humanity's hearts was only evil continually. And God was sorry that he had made humankind, and it grieved him to his heart. So he decided to flood the earth in order to scrub it clean. He kept one family alive in order to start over after the waters had subsided because he is committed to humanity even though we are not always committed to him. And everything else he drowned. Noah and his family were preserved. But as soon as the waters subsided and Noah stepped off the boat, we discover that God's judgment had done little to change their hearts because Noah's first act in this post-Diluvian world was to plant a vineyard. And as soon as the grapes were ready, he crushed them and got so drunk that he passed out and became the victim of one of his son's shadowy exploits. Judgment did not change the hearts of humanity. And another example is the experience of exile, which Daniel experienced. God's people had begun to worship things other than him, objects of their own creation and imagination. And so since he promised he wouldn't flood the earth again, God decided to send his people into exile this time and subject them to the terrors of Babylon, a pagan people who had no regard for God. But the exile didn't change the hearts of humanity either. 
Daniel acknowledges this in his prayer. When in verse 7, he confesses, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but, uh, but to us open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To this day, Daniel admits, we remain treacherous, treacherous and are ashamed of ourselves. The judgment of God did not change the hearts of humanity. Therefore, God in his holiness and justice has only two options. He can give us what we deserve for our sin and destroy us entirely. Or he can mercifully choose to delay his judgment a little longer. And in chapter 9, Daniel prays for the latter, for God to delay, for God to have mercy on his people as the reign of Babylon comes to an end, but still their hearts remain as treacherous as before. But as he does so, Daniel knows that he hasn't a leg to stand on because he himself is guilty as well. He has no right to request the mercy of God. And so his prayer displays the humility required when the guilty approach God. Daniel confesses not only his own sin, but also the sin of his people from previous generations, because he recognizes what we in the West have forgotten, that we are heirs of our ancestors for better or worse, and our lives are inextricably bound to them. Therefore, in verse 5, Daniel begins to pile on verb after verb to confess their treachery. We have sinned. We have done wrong. We've acted wickedly and rebelled. We've turned aside from your commandments and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Because of our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors, your people have become a disgrace among all our neighbors. You see, prayer begins with an acknowledgement of our position of guilt before a righteous and holy God. But prayer does not end there. It quickly moves to the character of God, first acknowledging his right to judge, for he is a just God, but then begging for his pardon because he's also merciful. And Daniel admits in verse 14, Indeed, the Lord our God is right in all that he has done, for we have disobeyed his voice. But the dual realities of our guilt and God's justice do not eliminate the possibility for mercy. And so guilty saints cry out as Daniel did in verse 19, O Lord, hear us. O Lord, forgive. We beg for God to have mercy, not because we deserve it, but because it is his character to be merciful. In our guilt, we pray that he will be his own motivation in showing us mercy. We do not present our supplication before you on the ground of our righteousness, Daniel explains in verse 18, but on the ground of your great mercies. His character and his promises are our only hope. If he's going to have mercy on us, it is because he has committed himself to us. If he's going to relent of his anger towards us, it's to show us that he's not just a God of justice, but also a God of love. And throughout history, time and time again, God deferred his judgment out of love. But he could not defer forever. For then, where would his sense of justice be? His justice must be satisfied. Therefore, these two, justice and love, are held in tension, waiting for someone to resolve them. Love and justice. Justice and love 
These two characteristics at the heart of God are held in tension until Jesus brings resolution through the cross. He satisfied the justice of God by offering himself in his full humanity as our replacement on the cross. The wrath of God was exhausted on him so that in Jesus we are forgiven and loved. The perfection of Jesus covers us like a blanket under which we hide so that God might deal mercifully with us despite our persistence in sin. In Jesus, we will only ever know the love of God now. Because when we fail, we can now point to Jesus. And God has mercy on us for the sake of his son who loved us literally to death. The judgment of God finally brought about the change in humanity necessary for us to be loved forever. Without any fear of judgment. On the cross, the justice and love of God meet and we are forgiven. But so great was our sin that it took the death of none other than the Son of God in the flesh to accomplish our forgiveness, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to bring us back from the land of sin in which we had been lost. And it's in this observation about what it ultimately took to satisfy God's demand for justice that we can begin to understand the meaning and purpose of the 70 weeks of Daniel. The 70 weeks are not predictive, but descriptive, revealing the true depth of our sin and the severity of God's judgment that must precede restoration and forgiveness. And what prompted Daniel to pray at the beginning of the chapter was that the 70 years of exile for God's people at the hands of the Babylonians appeared to be coming to an end because Babylon had fallen. And in anticipation of their restoration, Daniel begged for God to have mercy on his people. But in the message that came to him from God, Daniel discovered that his sins and the sins of his ancestors deserved a far greater punishment than he could have ever imagined. They deserved not just 70 years, but 70 weeks, or as some translations put it, 77s, which almost all scholars agree meant 70 times 7, or 490 years. See, the sin which we minimize or ignore or justify in our minds is deserving of far greater punishment in God's estimation, because it isn't just your neighbor whom you've wronged, but God as well. Because he created both you and your neighbor, and it grieves him to his soul to watch us tear at each other and think nothing of it. But here he shows Daniel. You thought you deserved just 70 years, but I'm telling you that your sins deserve 70 times 7. And perhaps this is now a, a good a time as any to point out why the 70 weeks of Daniel should not be considered predictive in nature. Because these numbers, 70 and 7 and 490 and numbers like them, 40 and 12 and 3, are numbers that that were never intended to exclusively convey an exact date in the ancient world. You see, the ancients had a different relationship with numbers than we'd have in the modern world. They used numbers to communicate abstract ideas like perfection or fullness or to represent the general length of time for a single generation. For example, God created the world in seven days. Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years, a length of time that Jesus repeated in miniature when he wandered the same desert many years later for 40 days. The rain fell on Noah's Ark for 40 days and 40 nights. 
Moses stayed on top of Sinai while he was receiving the law of God for 40 days. Jesus was asked how many times we should forgive someone, and his answer was 70 times 7. He certainly didn't mean that you could stop forgiving someone after they've wronged you the 491st time. And scholars also point out that the use of 70 and 490 in structuring history appears elsewhere in writings of the Persian and Greek periods. Numbers of this nature were not intended to provide an exact timeline, but were numbers used to divide history into chunks of time that conveyed a sense of completion according to God's will. There's obviously a stark difference between these kinds of numbers and the kinds of numbers you read about in, say, the book of Kings, where we see numbers like 22 or 8, 41 and 28, numbers that aren't repeated elsewhere throughout Scripture and are intended to reflect an accurate timeline for the length of a particular king's reign. Something different is therefore happening with the 70 weeks of Daniel. The 490 years revealed to Daniel the magnitude of Israel's sin and the severity of the punishment their sin merited. For those 490 years, desolations are decreed, verse 26 declares. And if you're reading these four enigmatic verses without the requirement of adhering to a strict timeline and with the last two visions of Daniel still lingering in your memory, then it makes all the sense in the world that these four verses are describing the terror of Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid king alluded to in both Daniel 7 and 8, who would systematically pursue the elimination of the Jewish people by destroying their scrolls, by forcing them to act in ways that violated their consciences and the Mosaic law, by prohibiting the Jews from offering sacrifices and by brutally murdering them. And there are enough resonances between the actions of Antiochus Epiphanes and the description of the prince to come in verse 26 that it's reasonable to say that the two are the same. The prince to come is described as profaning the sanctuary, the temple in verses 26 and in 27 as setting up an abomination in that holy place. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes slaughtered pigs in the temple and forced Jews to eat the meat that they believed would make them unclean before God. And it's believed that he set up a, a statue of Zeus in the temple, an abomination for the Jews who believed that to be God's temple. So what we have in the 70 weeks of Daniel is therefore a pattern, a description of how God accomplishes salvation. It begins with the revelation that the sins of God's people are far more offensive than we believe them to be. We deserve not 70 years of punishment, but 70 times seven, eternal punishment. And salvation, the finishing of transgression, the end of sin, the atonement for iniquity, the arrival of everlasting righteousness, as verse 24 describes it, will come about only after someone utterly opposed to God and to, his, and to his people appears to have won. This person appears to have defeated, defeated God by trampling all over the things most holy and valuable to him in this world. These four verses are historically describing Antiochus Epiphanes, but they are also setting our expectation for the pattern of salvation that will be repeated in Jesus Christ. For in the death of Jesus, we see that our sin is far more offensive than we allow, since only the death of the Son of God would satisfy God's demand for justice. 
And salvation came about only after it appeared that the devil had won. Satan was dancing on the grave of Jesus for three days after he had orchestrated the death of the person in this world whom God considered not just holy and valuable, but perfect. But after the exile came a return, and after the suffering of Jesus comes redemption. The victory of Satan was short-lived because Jesus rose victorious over the grave and now bestows life and forgiveness to all those who come to him in faith. He paid our penalty, and in him we now hide. And when we fail, we humbly point to him. And on account of Jesus, God is satisfied and shows us his love. We have nothing to fear in this world or in the next. For in Jesus, we are forgiven. We are victorious, and we are loved. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.